into the study. So let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we, we give you praise this morning. You are righteous, you are good, and you are good to your people. And we praise you for that, that you are faithful to your promises. And we see that displayed throughout your word, especially here um, in the study of the Pentateuch. Pray as we um, end our, our study of the, of the Torah, of the first five books of, of your word, that we can uh, see afresh, see anew uh, connections that you have intended in your word that reveal the, the great promise that we saw in Genesis 3 of your son, Jesus, crushing the head of the serpent and seeing that, that promise developed um, through scripture. Lord, help us, help us make these connections and help us fall more in love with your word that we may submit our lives unto it and submit our lives to you as our Lord. And we pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're continuing to work through, as I just prayed, the, the Pentateuch. And we're going to be looking at the last two books there. Um, Numbers and Deuteronomy, which may be my two favorite books in the Old Testament, maybe. It may be because I just studied them this week, but they're really good books. Um, and just by way of reminder, we're using the book Dominion and Dynasty by Stephen Dempster as our guide through the Old Testament. And in this book, Dempster's tracing the themes of geography um, or dominion and genealogy, dynasty, through the Old Testament narrative. And it's his thesis in the book that these themes are the two main threads woven through the big story of the Old Testament that, that sort of connect everything together, that, that connect the narrative together throughout the Old Testament. So as we're working through each of the books of the Old Testament, it's just a good to, to remember we, we, we aren't going into every detail of every story or even making every important biblical theological connection that could and, and should be made. Rather, we are tracing out these two themes, these twin themes of dominion and dynasty in the storyline of the Old Testament that, that formulates sort of the, the backbone of the narrative structure. So with that said, let's move to the book of Numbers. And Numbers continues the theme and storyline of, of the Israelites maintaining a relationship with, with Yahweh, who is holy, that we saw um, in Leviticus, continuing that theme that we saw in Leviticus. But it adds new developments of of major difficulties the Israelites face while entering the land of promise, while entering the promised land. So we see the Israelites begin to move from Sinai, where, where they've been since Exodus 19, right, after being delivered from Egyptian slavery in the, in the Red Sea event. And they'll move into the desert or, or the, the wilderness, and in the beginning of Numbers, we get a, a census of the Israelite nation, as well as um, a description of the arrangement of the tribes of Israel around the tabernacle. 
which remember the tabernacle is where God's presence is, is immediately residing among his people. And in chapter 10 of Numbers, the Israelites finally moved from Sinai, where, where they've been again since Exodus 19 um, and narrative time. And they finally moved through to the, to the desert. And Dempster argues the, the main reason for these meticulous details about the, the arrangement of the Israelite camp in the narrative of Numbers is to show how the tribes, how the tribes of Israel are, are organized around the divine presence in the sanctuary of the tabernacle, which, which represents sort of a, an, an oasis in the wilderness that they're about to embark in. So another important note about all of these numbers at the beginning of numbers is that they, they, they function in the story as, the, as a fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise that we saw back in Genesis. To have, to, to have descendants, right, as numerous as the stars. Abraham's clan grew from, from 12 to 70 to now 600,000. So we can see clearly the, the theme of genealogy or seed being paramount in numbers. As, as the numbers fulfill, right, the promise that God gave to Abraham. We also see that the, the tribes which form the Israelite nation follows the presence of God revealed in, in the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Right? They, they literally follow where the Lord leads. The people remain stationary when the divine presence comes to rest and they must move when the, the, the divine presence moves. And the goal of this moving is eventually to enter the, the promised land. They aren't just, just aimlessly wandering through the desert or through the wilderness, although as you're going to see if you read Numbers, that's how many of the Israelites felt. But the Israelites are led to the land of Canaan, which is described in Numbers 13.27 as a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a, it's a prosperous, bountiful land. And Dempster writes, Numbers establishes, establishes from its very beginning the thematic element of the land as the end to which everything drives. And its, a matter in, and its matter and movement are consistently oriented toward that goal, toward the goal of the land. So in short, land... And, and possession of the land is a really big deal in the book of Numbers, as it's been a big deal in, in all of these first books of the Old Testament. Now, there's one fundamental problem in the book of Numbers, and this is repeating the same pattern that we saw in, in Genesis and, and Exodus and Leviticus. And the big problem is the people's sin, the people's sinful hearts. Israelite unbelief. And Dempster argues that, that if Exodus and Leviticus brought up like, like pessimistic notions about the Israelite ability to fulfill the, the, the covenant made with them at Sinai, then, then Numbers is just absolutely, completely pessimistic 
downright pessimistic. There's story after story of Israelite failure in the book of Numbers. And we see this as soon as, as the journey from, from Sinai to the land of promise begins. So from chapters 11 to, to 25 of Numbers is marked by the, the people's distrust in the Lord, often expressed by grumbling against His divine care and provision. The scholar Michael Morales has noted that, that these events of disobedience establish a five-fold pattern we see throughout the book, which this is pretty interesting to note. So first, the, the, people the, the Israelites complain or, or, the, or they disobey, and then the Lord punishes them. Moses then intercedes on Israel's behalf, which then leads to God relenting from his judgment. And finally, the place is then named to, to recall, the, is, the, recall to the Israelites' memory of the sin that they committed. So first, the pattern is, first, Israel's grumbling or disobedience. Second, Yahweh's punishment of that grumbling and disobedience. Third, pat, third thing in the pattern, Moses' intercession on behalf of Israel. Then fourth, we see Yahweh relenting of his judgment. And then finally, fifth, naming of the place to recall the incident. And we, we, you can see all of these aspects of this pattern in Numbers 11, verses 1 through 3, which I'll just read quickly for us. And just notice if you can see this, this pattern. The word says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. So notice, right, all the aspects of this pattern that that's going to become familiar, more familiar, the, the more you read in the narrative of Numbers. So in Numbers 12, Miriam and Aaron oppose Moses and rebel against his leadership. In Numbers 13 and 14, the Israelites' journey into the Promised Land actually comes to a complete end, at least for this, this first generation of Israelites. So remember this, this story, right, where where the Israelites decide to, to send spies into the land of promise to, to scout out what they're going to deal with in the promised land. And the, the spies return after their trip into Canaan completely intimidated right, by the gigantic size of the, of the population. And in Numbers 14, verses 1 through 4, the, the whole Israelite community after the report from the spies, they, they raise their voice against Moses and complain and they, they despair over what God is doing again, over the lot that they've been given yet again. But they also go further and they want to, right, the text says they want to undo their own deliverance from Egyptian slavery and, and actually return back to Egypt, return back to the chains of slavery. They even plot to choose a, a new leader to replace Moses. 
And the people, right, they want a new leader who's going to lead them back to, to Egypt, to slavery. So that is how fearful the, the Israelites are of the Canaanites. Um, so we see, right, we see in this story massive cowardice on display by God's covenant people and a massive distrust by the Israelites of God's power and, and God's promises to them. So in verse 10 of chapter 14, the people threatened to kill Moses and the Israelite leadership. It's just a, it's a terrible scene. It's not a good scene at all. And then dramatically in the story, the, the glory of the Lord appears in the camp and, and Yahweh intervenes in this active rebellion. And then Moses again pleads and intercedes on behalf of the Israelites' wickedness and, and their unfaithfulness. And I think this story is it's supposed to remind us of another story very similar to this. It's very re reminiscent to, to Exodus 32 through 34 and the sin with the, the golden calf incident. Moses, again, alludes back to the covenant made with Abraham and God's character when he intercedes on behalf of the people. And God does forgive the people again, but this rebellion does not go unpunished. God condemns the, this generation of Israelites to, to exile in the wilderness desert, and they will not be able to enter the land. This genera generation of Israelites, because of this disobedience, will not be able to enter the land of promise. The people must stay 40 years in the desert and the spies, right, remember the spies who used their influence to lead the people away from, from following the Lord's will, from following the Lord's promise of entering the land. Their fate was much more immediate, right? They, they were struck down immediately and died. And only Joshua and Caleb survived, who remained faithful to the Lord. And those two, importantly, right, would be the the only ones of the first generation of Israelites to enter the land of promise. Which is why I think we, right, we remember their names in history because they were faithful to Yahweh, which is just a great reminder for us, just a, a great thing to aspire to, to, to pray about every morning, that we would be a people marked by faithfulness to Yahweh alone. And in the very next chapter, chapter 15, it contains a bunch of laws, which sometimes we just gloss over. Oh, just another list of a bunch of laws. Content, just, it contains legislation about the land, which kind of seems maybe out of place. Um, legislation often follows a narrative and serves as kind of the, the divine response to the previous story. And it may seem like a pretty insignificant or insignificant portion of numbers, but it's huge in the place of the narrative. Because the, the I would argue the opening words of, of chapter 15 are full of reassurance and hope for the Israelites. And after the, the terrible events that make up chapter chapters 13 and 14, the, the Israelites hear that the Lord will nevertheless bring them into the land. That's why he's giving them laws for the land. 
So again, we can see God's incredible mercy and faithfulness to this unfaithful people. And it's, it's truly amazing. Then we, we see a, a distinction made in, in the text between sins of ignorance or, or unintentional sins and, and intentional sins, or what is sometimes called high-handed sins. And those sins that are unintentional or come from ignorance can be atoned for through, through a sacrifice that will allow for restored fellowship with the Lord, while high-handed, intentional, defiant sins will be marked by banishment from the covenant community. I think this, this foreshadows kind of the New Testament practice of church discipline or of the, the new covenant community of Jesus Christ. And it's as if Moses then immediately presents an object lesson of a, a high-handed intentional sin. And a, a, a man, right, he gathers wood on, on the Sabbath, a clear violation of God's law, and the Lord commands that the man must die. And so they, they stone, the community stones the man to death. And the point is, right, and... I think the point in the story is that covenant violation could not be taken more seriously. God is extremely serious about the demands of his covenant. And to emphasize this even more, that the Israelites are commanded to, to make tassels for their garments that, that serve as a reminder, a constant reminder to obey the law that God has given them. So they're, they're constantly reminded of God's law and keeping God's commandments as the, his covenant people. And so as we pick up the pace, we, we move on in the book of, of Numbers. The, the unfaithfulness in disasters associated with the people's unfaithfulness is not over. They, they continue to happen. There's a revolt against Moses again, which, yeah, I don't know how, yeah. Moses had a rough time with the Israelites. And this time Aaron is involved or is being, being revolted against by, by some Levites and others. It results in a judgment of earthquake and a divine fire against the people. And again, the, the, the severe judgment from Yahweh does not stop the people's grumbling. Um, I've heard one scholar say, or maybe I read this, that, that these stories function in the narrative, all of these stories function in the narrative to highlight to us that, that these rebellions by this first generation of Israelites illustrate for us the total incapacity of repentance. A total incapacity of repentance by the people. Right? They keep doing the same things over and over again. In I think that that's clear from these historical accounts. In chapter 20 of Numbers, even Moses and Aaron do not live up to God's holiness <clears throat> with, the, with the water from the rock event where, where Moses reacts in anger, which when I read that, I'm like, he's kind of justified, right? He's, these people are not the, the most loyal followers. Um, <clears throat> but he reacts in anger and, and he strikes the rock out of anger against the Lord's command. And for this sin, Moses too will, like this generation of Israelites, will not enter the land of promise, which I think is a, is a tragic event in 
the storyline of Scripture. So as the, the older generation dies off, the, the people's wandering in the wilderness gradually comes to the end in numbers. Yet there, there's still more sin. Grumbling in chapter 21 leads to the, the judgment of the poisonous serpents. Remember the story? Um, but there is, I want to note this, Dempster notes this, there is a difference. There, there's a note of hope with this newer generation of Israelites that, that wasn't there previously. In verse 7, the people can confess their sins against the Lord. And the Lord provides, you could say, a, a means of salvation that the people in faith can look at and live. Right? The, the bronze serpents lifted up and they in faith can look at it and be saved. Right? This is... Jesus would be compared to this snake, right? We, we, I don't know how many months ago, but we went through this in John, right? Lifted up on the cross that we may look on him in faith and live. There's a clear connection with Jesus in this story. And in Numbers 25, the Israelites fall into idolatry yet again by, by having relations with Moabite women, the, the men of Israel were, but there's a radical act of atonement by, by Phineas when, when Phineas, who's, who's a priest, follows an Israelite man and Moabite woman into his tent, and he, and he strikes both of, the, both of them dead. He kills both of them. And the Lord blesses this act and stops the plague he sent on the people for their idolatry. So again, I'm just highlighting that story as another sign that this generation is, there are signs of difference from the first. They have signs of confessing sin and repentance. And the remainder of the book of Numbers has a, a new census of the new generation and preparations for the occupation of the land in chapter 26, which again, I think that that, that should trigger to us as readers to see hope, right? There's there's, there's still laws and promises about the land, which should signify to us hope. They're, they're, they're not a failed people. In chapters 27 and 36, we find preparations for the occupation of the land. And in chapter 34, the descriptions of the boundaries of the land of Canaan. And then we also see a transition of, of leadership from Moses to Joshua in chapters 27. But overall, I think it's pretty clear just from, a, just from reading the book front to back, the, the tone of the whole book of Numbers is pretty bleak. After the Israelites again and again grumble against Yahweh and his provision and his plan and his will and get punished for breaking of the covenant with God. But there is major hope in Numbers and this hope is found in a pretty unlikely story, a pretty unlikely place given the story. And that is with the account of Balak and Balaam. Balak and Balaam in Numbers 22 through 24. But before getting to Balak and Balaam, any questions, comments? Yeah. Jesus, Art's bringing up the... the 
the rock in the water event with Moses pointing to Jesus as being referred to as rock in both living water in the New Testament. I'm sure there's probably connection there. So this may be Balak and Balaam. It's typically called the, the Balaam Oracles. Might be, yeah, it's one of my top five favorite stories in the Old Testament, so we're going to spend quite a bit of time here just for selfish reasons, but this story is awesome. So Balak is a, a Moabite king at the time in Numbers, and he's terrified of the Israelites because of their, their large number, and the Israelites just defeated the, the Amorites in the previous chapter. So, so he's terrified of the Israelites, which is kind of funny because the Israelites are terrified of everyone else. Everyone's just kind of afraid of everyone. So he hires this guy named Balaam, who is a, what Dempster calls a pagan diviner, I couldn't think, like, he's a, he's a pagan prophet. I'm thinking maybe, like, in our day, maybe, like, a, a fortune teller. I don't know. Um, and he, he, he hires him to have the, the gods curse the curse Israel. So Balak wants Balaam to use his, his quote-unquote, supernatural powers of, of, of oracle or prophecy to curse and destroy Israel. So that's kind of the background of the story. And we see um, in the story is that, or, or kind of the main point of the story, is that God's saving intentions for the world will not be frustrated by any enemy, even what, whoever, what the, the enemy perceives as the most powerful spiritual adversary, which would be Balaam in this story, this, this, this pagan, diviner, prophet, who can bring curses on people. So as the, the narrative begins, we see Balak summon Balaam because he says, I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. Those you bless, you bless, and those you curse are cursed. This is very linguistically close to something we've seen before. Does anyone want to take a shot at where we've seen this? Language. Genesis 12, yes, ding, ding, ding. Yes, I think this, is, this, this echoes the promise God makes with Abraham way back in, in Genesis 12. Those who you curse, I will curse, and through all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we're going to see this phrase return over and over in the narrative, or something similar to this phrase, which is something we should note when we're reading it. Right? Moses, the author, he, I think he's intentionally placing this phrase to make a point. And it's clear any attempts to curse the seed of Abraham will fail. As we're going to see with the Balak and Balaam story. And I also think this, this connection can, can connects this story to the, to the larger tor- story we've seen since Genesis 3 between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So, so what is at stake is not simply just the, the political fears of this pagan king, this pagan Moabite king, but actually a direct attack on the promise of God for the world through the seed of Abraham. So it's connecting it to this larger story of the, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So Balaam, he, he initially refuses to go along with Balak's plan because he hears a divine word that confirms the Abrahamic promise. And we see this in Numbers twenty-two, twelve. 12. God said to Balaam, 
you shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. This is speaking about the, the Israelites. And so Balaam, he, he rejects Balak's offer. Balak is pretty stubborn. He's, he's undeterred by this rejection, and he sends another delegation to convince Balaam. And this time he brings a lot more wealth, a lot more money. And money or greed, we see in other parts of the scripture, is Balaam's weakness. Which, which I think should indicate to us as readers that Balaam is not some virtuous good guy in the story, which is sometimes argued. Um, but I don't think that's what's happening here. I think God is using um, evil for good, which we've seen all the way back in Genesis. And so Balaam goes with the Moabites, but on his way, on his way he, he receives uh, another object lesson, which Moses keeps doing in the book of Numbers. Balaam, right, who, who is supposed to be the, the great perceiver of the spiritual world, this, this pagan diviner. And in this story, it's clear that he has less spiritual insight than a donkey, which is quite funny, I think, on God's part for him to do this. Balaam is unable to see the angel of the Lord who stood in front of his path while the donkey perceives him clearly. The point is, some spiritual insight this guy Balaam has, right? When, when the time of cursing comes, so, so Balaam is now going to curse Israel. Um, in the story, the curse is actually transformed into a, a blessing by Yahweh. And in chapter 23, verse 8, Balaam says, How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not cursed? denounced. So I think, that again, this is, this is pointing back to, to Genesis 12. And then Balaam affirms the, the genealogical aspect of the promise God made to Abraham in verse 10. He says, who can count the dust of Jacob or, or number even a fraction of Israel? So Balak's not happy with that, but he's still undeterred. After this plan fails, right, but Balaam actually blesses Israel. He wanted Balaam to curse Israel. Balak urges Balaam to curse Israel again. And again, this is to no avail. Balaam blesses Israel again. And in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 23, he says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Behold, I received the command to bless. He, ha he has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. This is showing the awesome power of God. And in verse 21, he says that, that the Lord, this is important in the context of numbers, that the Lord has not beheld sin in Jacob, nor trouble in Israel. So just remember the immediate context of numbers. Massive amounts of sin and trouble, and yet... God is, is not holding it ultimately against Israel. He's faithful to his son, Israel. The third curse attempt from Balaam is probably the most important. And so I'm going I'm to read portions of it. Um, but Balaam looks out and he sees the tents of Israel. And I'm just going to read chapter 24, verses 5 through 9. This is what he says. 
How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like alloys that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness. Who, who will rouse him? Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. So I hope while, while just reading that, you could, you could note right, the, the, the Eden-like imagery. Right? Israel is compared to rivers and gardens, trees that the Lord has planted. Um, the, the point is Israel is to be a return to an Edenic-like place. And then the image goes to, to the abundance of water that flows from the, the vegetation, from the garden, and a seed that will be in the water, a seed that will be in the water. Dempster argues the seed language refers to, to one of the trees in the image that will, grow, that will grow higher than the others than the, and higher than even the king of Agag, the, the Amalekite king. And so we see, important for this, we see the, the, the promise of dominion here. And the oracle ends, right? Maybe you notice this with two citations from Genesis. First from Genesis 49.9, which we covered when we, when we looked at Genesis. So, so remember, this is the story, or this is the, the prophecy from Jacob, or Israel, regarding the line of Judah. Israel, right? Judah is a, a, the line of Judah is a mighty warrior who will crush his enemies. And the second passage is, again, Genesis 12, 3. So finally, after all these curse attempts, Balak orders Balaam to go. He's had enough. He realizes this isn't working. Um, he can't curse Israel. He can't curse Yahweh's son. But Balaam leaves Balak with, with one parting shot, which we see in chapter 24, verses 16 and 17. He says, The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Notice also in, in, in verse 14 this important phrase that comes before this prophecy. In the latter days, or literally in the last days. Where have we seen that before? Anyone remember? Genesis 49, right? Genesis 49 and the blessing from the line of Judah. 
And remember that this, this phrase can mean the, the end of history. And so what we see then is that, that Israel, Israel, Israel will have hope in a future ruler who will crush the skulls of his enemies. And Dempster argues that, that just in the immediate context, this, this seems rather insignificant, that, that Israel will triumph over the enemies, their enemies sometime in the future, in the last days. But in the big picture storyline, we can see the connection, right? We can see the connection back to Genesis 49, where the tribe of Judah was singled out who would have a seed, a particular seed, with universal rule and destruction of his enemies like a lion. And Balaam's prophecy here is directly connected, directly related back to that one in Genesis. And we're supposed to make this connection as readers, right? A star shall rise out of Jacob, a, a scepter from Israel. The word star in verse 17, I think, indicates an individual star from a mass of stars. So think again back to Genesis 15. And the promise to Abraham and his descendants to be, the num to be as numerous as the number of the stars. And now this prophecy is saying one star will come out of Jacob. One descendant from the group, right? Who is this obviously pointing towards? Yes, Jesus. That's the right answer. This is pointing towards Christ. And we also see in this, this final prophecy a, a, a callback to the ever-important Genesis 3.15. This star who will rule will crush the heads of Moab. Right? The, the Moabites represent, I think here, the, the forces arranged against Israel, Israel's enemies, forces that seek to curse and thwart the promise of God. So this is much like Egypt is represented in the beginning of Exodus. I think this language of crushing heads is, is clearly pointing back to the crushing of the serpent's head promise in Genesis 3. And this star from the line of Jacob will crush the heads of those who stand opposed to God's promises. So Dempster writes of the importance of this whole section. He says, the, the wider literary context contains a direct allusion to a particular seed of the woman, which is part of the larger seed of Israel that is going to defeat the forces of evil and provide rule for the world. So the geographical domain is not only Israel, but also the whole world, which we've seen right now. We've seen that in Genesis 49 and also now with this oracle from Balaam. So I hope... You love this story even more now. Um, and you're convinced that these oracles from this pagan man, Balaam, are, are extremely important in the overall narrative of the Old Testament. So in summary, if you've tuned out, you can check back in now. Balaam's oracles envision a king emerging from Israel to destroy enemies in language identical to, to Genesis 49, like, like an invincible lion, and in the next oracle, a star or scepter arises from Israel to, to smash the heads of the Moabites, who represent the enemy of God's people. So notice again in these oracles, the, the prominent theme of dominion 
and a kingly dynasty, a dynasty. Everything, right, is everything in the story, right, Dempster is arguing, is working towards that end. And we're seeing glimpses of, glimpses of it in this oracle. And the, the oracles function closer in, in, the, uh, in the narrative of numbers uh, that, that, that there's notes of hope, right, in the, in the sea of disappointment that, that seems to characterize a lot of numbers. And that hope is found in the Abrahamic covenant and the promise of the triumph of Israel through a particular descendant who will bring blessing to the nations. That hope is still present even amongst all the Israelite sin and unfaithfulness and numbers. So I think this, all of this just makes the, the Balak and Balaam story extremely beautiful. It's just a, a beautifully designed portion of the book. Um, Before moving to Deuteronomy, any questions, comments? Yeah, hallelujah. That's a great point that God is, right, he's so faithful amidst our wickedness. Yes, which I think, yeah. It is amazing. And points to the, the larger thing we've seen overall that this, this dominion and dynasty, this kingdom is for the whole world, for the nations from the beginning, um, not simply Israel, which is going to be important as we move on. So let's move on to Deuteronomy. I've left 15 minutes for Deuteronomy, which is good. Deuteronomy is a wonderful, wonderful book. You should read it, which I already told you to read Exodus last week, but you should read Deuteronomy this week. It's a great book. Um, it functions in the Old Testament as a transitional book, Right, it concludes the Torah, or the books of the law, and is the introduction, we could say the, the foundation to the historical accounts recorded in Joshua to Kings. So most scholars agree that what we have in the book of Deuteronomy consists mostly of a series of exhortations, or some people like to call them sermons, from Moses to the people of Israel, as, as sort of like his last instructions to the people before he dies and before they enter into the promised land under their new leader, Joshua. So these words are extremely important, just given the nature that they're Moses, who's the, been the, probably the most important human character in the story this far. It's his last words. That conveys to us, this is important stuff. Um, and so just given the structure of the book, Dempster jumps around thematically. He's not going... Um, chapter by chapter, like he does in other books. So we'll be jumping around to different places in the book. But just a basic outline of the book. This is extremely basic, a really basic outline of the book. And I got this from Gary Miller, an Old Testament professor's commentary. So chapters one through three serve as a, a retrospective introduction of Israel's history, of Israel's recent history. Chapters four through 11 is is a sustained appeal from Moses, urging God's people to live in response to his word within the promised land. Chapters 12 through 26 is the, the, the biggest portion of Deuteronomy. It's a, a long collection of laws that, that map out the shape 
of the life that God caused the Israelites to have in the promised land. So you get laws um, pertaining to the promised land. Then chapters 27 through 30 serve as the, the conclusion of Moses' exhortation. And then chapters 31 through 34 underline the, the key lessons of the book and draws the Pentateuch, Pentateuch to a close in the narrative. So very rough outline. Numbers ended with Israel on the plains of Moab, across from the Canaanite city of, of Jericho. And this is where Deuteronomy is set, where it begins. And Dempster says then there, there's, there's elements in the book when we, re- when we read it, of suspense, urgency, anticipation, um, right, of, of the, the fulfillment of the long-awaited promise of land, right, that's right on the horizon, it's right about to happen, and the tension, right, the suspense is found in this. Will this new generation of Israelites fail like the old one? Who, who were barred from entering the land. So obviously the, the theme of land is extremely prevalent in the book. Dempster argues that the, the promised land is at the forefront of Deuteronomy from beginning to end. He notes that the phrase, the land I'm about to give you, and, and the phrase, making a sanctuary in the place Yahweh would choose to cause his name to dwell, both of those phrases are, are repeat, repeatedly used throughout the book. Right? All of the legislation in, in chapters 12 through 26 are laws that regulate life in the land. And for the most part in the book, the land is viewed as a blessing. So many of the blessing that Israel experiences, if they are to obey the law of God, many of the blessings they experience involve the land. right? Rain, productive crops, livestock that's, what do you, good livestock, healthy livestock. Um, And so we see in chapter 8 that Canaan, the promised land, is a place of blessing, while the wilderness, where they've been in place, is a place of curse. And beyond the the physical blessings of the promised land, we see in Deuteronomy the idea developed that we've seen thus far in the Torah, that, that within the nation of Israel, in the promised land, is a, a special place where the divine presence will, will emanate and where Yahweh will cause his name to dwell amongst his people. We see this clearly in chapter 12 of the book. This land will be the, the sole permanent place of the formal worship and sacrifice to God. Right, this is where the, the, the sanctuary will be established and the the Ark of the Covenant will be placed. Again, showing that that God is taking up residence with His chosen, with His elect people. And Dempster argues that the divine presence right, in Holy Land echo the lost glory of Eden, which we have seen throughout all of the the kind of the tabernacle passages and the, the sanctuary passages throughout the Torah. That same theme is being continued in Deuteronomy. In chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, there is a list of blessings um, for obedience to the law and a longer list of curses for disobedience to the law. Right? We, see, we saw something very similar to this section in the book of Leviticus. The curses 
far outweigh the blessings, just in, in number, which again indicates to the, to the reader just an ominous um, future for Israel. The curses concern p- potential enemy invasion of the land and life outside of the land, so, so exile. The, the curses are centered still on this theme of geography and, and land. So the ultimate curse of the land is exile. So we could say in the book of Deuteronomy, one of the supreme blessings is to possess the land. One of the ultimate curses is is exile from the land. Because remember, the land is where the presence of Yahweh dwells. And without the land, without the nation, the expectation is God's presence will depart in some way from Israel. There will be no more sanctuary. So it will be true tragedy and and the death of a nation, but not only the death of a nation, but the death of a parent communion with God for his people. So the the main theme Dempster's arguing in in Deuteronomy is, is clearly land and the acquiring of the promised land and laws pertaining to the promised land. But Dempster's Dempster argues there, there's still the theme of genealogy or dynasty. It's very present. We, we, we again see, as we did in the book of Numbers, Moses stating of the, the multiplication of the people due to the promise given to Abraham. We see in, in Deuteronomy 10.22, 10.22, which says, your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Right, that's pretty clear connection. Definitely, we see here, I think, fulfillment language back to the promise given to, to Abraham and his seed in Genesis 15. In Deuteronomy 8.5, we see the idea that, that Israel is a son of God, where, where the discipline of the Lord should be viewed as how a man disciplines his son, right? That that is the the nature of the relationship between Yahweh and Israel. Again, stressing dynasty. And this sonship is is representative, as we've seen throughout the the Torah. And that if, if Israel keeps the law, right, they will be a blessing to the nations. You can see this in Deuteronomy 4, 6, or or Deuteronomy 28.10. Uh, Deuteronomy 28.10 says that, And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of Yahweh, and they shall be afraid of you. Or, or literally, they, they shall um, respect you. Right. So, so sonship then is tied to reflecting God's character, character to the world by or through obedience to the law. But perhaps the biggest... Um, dynasty theme found in the book of Deuteronomy is found in the laws pertaining to kingship. The laws pertaining to kingship, and we find out something about the nature of the dynastic rule of the Israelite king will have, that the Israelite king will have. So the law concerning Israelite kingships found in, in Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, and this passage foreshadows what we're going to see in, in Samuel, where, where Israel desires to have a king like the pagan nations. This attempt to have a king, right? We're going to see this 
clearly in, in Samuel, represents a, a rejection of the divine rule of Yahweh. But this legislation given by Moses accommodates the des- this desire, but something important happens, and this is what I want us to note. The Israelite king will not be like other kings. So his rule will be entirely different than the surrounding nations. And we see, right, in the text, future kings of Israel must be native Israelites marked by a certain distinctive behavior. So the king wouldn't simply be the best, the strongest, the most politically savvy person in the nation, or what we might expect we'd want in a king. Rather, we we see the king of Israel would would copy the law of God, the Torah, by, by reading it regularly, Right? And, be, and being kind of a, a model Israelite in his obedience to God's law. So he's going to copy the law of God on his heart. That is how he is going to rule. And Dempster argues this requirement of a future Israelite king will lead to, to lasting and appropriate royal dominion. A dominion that rules in humility and, and in the fear of Yahweh. And this passage is really important because it's going to be the paradigm of how Israelite kings will be judged in the subsequent history of God's people in the books of, of Samuels and, and Kings. So here, right, we, we see a blueprint of sorts, the, the outline of what Israelite dominion or, or what the Israelite dynasty will be characterized by, by a king fully devoted to God and his word and his law, a model Israelite in his obedience. Deuteronomy also, just, just like the other books we've seen, has themes of, of doom because of the people's sin dispersed throughout the book, and this is where we're going to end this morning. So at the beginning of the book, Moses describes God's saving history of the Israelites, And in chapter 4, verses 25 through 28, he predicts that they will violate the law of God and end up in exile. That the Israelites will, it's going to happen, they will violate God's law and end up in exile. And the book concludes with a similar pessimistic prediction of the future of the Israelite people. Deuteronomy 30 is very important in this respect. Because there we see the problem Moses says, is with the people's heart. With the people's heart. They're described in other parts of the book as a stiff-necked people, right, who, who rebel against the Lord. I think we, if anyone who reads the book of Numbers can, can clearly attest to this. And Moses is saying they require radical heart surgery. In short, they, they can't obey the law of God without a circumcised heart without a, a, a new, transformed heart. Dempster writes the importance on the, the importance of chapter 30. He says, it's almost as if another covenant is needed, one in which the heart is transformed to conform to the demands of the law. Right? I think that's exactly right in how we should be reading Deuteronomy 30 and these passages where Moses talks about the need for a circumcision of the heart for true repentance and obedience to God's law. But just like the rest of the Pentateuch, the 
the doom presence, right, the, the doom because of the people's sin, does not mean there is no hope. If the judgment of exile is inevitable because of the heart condition of the sinful Israelites, which it is, there is notes of real restoration for the Israelites if they receive a new heart and repent. One example of this is found in in chapter 32, which is the Song of Moses, following the the prediction of the exile of Israel, Israel, there's a poem of blessing in which Moses pronounces his his benediction of sorts on the tribes of Israel. And this, Dempster argues, indicates to the reader hope, not judgment. Hope will be the last word for Israel. And throughout the, the blessing is the theme of triumph over enemies. Moses goes through every tribe of Israel and says how the Israelite foes will be struck down. Meaning meaning to us as readers that the Israelites are going to be victorious in the end. The the conclusion of the book ends with with the death of Moses and and again brings together the, the twin themes of Geography and genealogy. Moses is taken up to Mount Nebo where, where the Lord shows him the land. So the, the Lord shows him the land of promise. And in verse 4 he says, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offsprings. And then Moses kind of perfectly, climactically, he dies. He, he sees the vision of the land reaffirms, gets reaffirmed the promise that God has made his people, and he dies. I think this is a beautiful passage of scripture. Here is Moses, the great leader of Israel, the great intercessor on behalf of his people. And the Lord, despite Moses' disobedience and numbers, is granted a view of the land. He, he's reaffirmed the promise on his deathbed, so to speak. God is faithful to his promises. This is what it should convey to us as as readers. God is faithful to his promises and he's faithful to his people. It's truly incredible. And then the the, the focus then shifts to the one who will follow Moses, to, to Joshua. Joshua, who's full of the spirit of wisdom, will now lead the people of God into the promised land. I can envision this scene kind of like just the end of a movie. Like this is the end of the first chapter of the trilogy of the Old Testament. This is a beautiful scene of Moses' death and then Joshua now taking the leadership role of the people. And and the the end of the book and the end of the Torah concludes with these words in Deuteronomy 34, verses 10 through 11. Says there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. So Dempster argues that that there is an implication from these words that. That many prophets have come and gone in Israel's history, 
that are, are patterned after the, the Mosaic model, yet no one has risen to his stature. The, the tech signals, right? It's, a, it's signaling a, a, an end of an era, you could say. The, the end of Moses and the end of the Torah, which brings closure, right? I think appropriate closure to the first book in the Old Testament, if you're following kind of the tripart division of the books. And it prepares way, right, for the next section of the canon, the prophets, which is going to chronicle the Israelites' journey into the land and the establishment of the Davidic kingship. And so next week, that's where we're going to begin to look at the book of the prophets and start by digging into the, the former prophets, which is Joshua to Kings. Joshua to Kings. And we'll see as see how far we get in that. But that's all I have for today. We're